In the summer of 2018, Efren Olivares was a human rights lawyer in South Texas who became a crisis worker on the front lines of zero tolerance, representing hundreds of families in court. In his new and deeply moving memoir, My Boy Will Die of Sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines, Olivares weaves his own personal story of family separation with that of the hundreds of families who he worked to reunite. Olivares talks about the challenges when it comes to doing social justice work, where there's often few happy outcomes, and about how family separations continue to happen, and what the U.S. government could do to stop these separations right now. Putting these feelings, these experiences on the page was cathartic, he says about writing the book. Letting it out and sharing it with readers was one way of not keeping it all bottled up inside myself. Okay, great. Well, um, congratulations on your book. It's really, really wonderful. I think I, I wrote in uh, our recommendations for summer reading that, you know, I read it all in like one sitting on a flight to Mexico City and I couldn't put it down. And uh, I just really appreciate too how you woven your own personal story uh of immigration with along with your you know your clients and and just a history of uh family separation that's been going on for decades thank you so much i appreciate that and i'm i'm glad that the story resonated i think with people who have you know worked on or lived through immigration in their lives there's a lot of common patterns that i i frankly hadn't reflected on much or hadn't thought about the, the how frequent some of these experiences are and how common they are regardless of you know the the specific immigration circumstance but i i hope that the book conveys conveys that yeah, absolutely. And I, I wanted you to first just talk about uh, Texas Civil Rights Project, where you used to work, and sort of how you discovered, you know, the, that family separation was happening. And then how many clients did you actually end up representing? How many families? I started at the Texas Civil Rights Project in 2013, um, in December of 2013. And the organization focuses on voting rights issues, criminal justice reform, and border and immigration issues. The organization was actually founded in, in the Valley, in South Texas, as it was the legal arm of the farm worker movement there in the 70s and 80s. And that's how it started, originally called La Oficina Legal del Pueblo Unido. And when I got there in 2013, the kind of focus on immigration issues was not fully developed and we got involved we started to get involved in, in those issues in 2014 with the influx of, of unaccompanied children and teenagers from central america in particular um, we had brought a lawsuit to against the state of texas for denying birth certificates to the children of undocumented parents, even though the children were born in the U.S. in Texas hospitals, they were being denied birth certificates. So we were sort of starting uh, to get involved and focused on immigration and border issues. And then the 2016 presidential election happened uh, after a campaign that had used immigration and the border as a lightning rod 
And that's when our focus really turned into those issues. We were developing a campaign to support landowners, for example, whose land were stood to be expropriated for purposes of building the border wall. And then in the spring of 2018 was when the then Attorney General Jeff Sessions made an announcement about this new zero tolerance policy that was going to require prosecution of 100% of the individuals who crossed the border between ports of entry. And he went even further announcing that anybody traveling with a child would be separated from a child, from a son or daughter. And if people didn't want to be separated, they should not cross the border, not bring a child. And that was officially rolled out in April of 2018. There was a press conference then the first week of May 2018, but we weren't yet seeing how it was happening in practice. And then one day in May, I got a phone call from one of the federal public defenders in McAllen telling me that, you know, she had been representing people across the uh, accused, excuse me, of illegal entry uh, for many years. And it was usually almost a routine prosecution in the sense that the person is it's a misdemeanor charge. The person is typically sentenced to time served. So the, the criminal proceedings are concluded and they are transferred over to ICE to continue their immigration case. But that now her clients who had been traveling with a child were reporting that they hadn't seen their children a couple of days for a couple of days since they were arrested and they didn't know where their children were or where my, uh, where they had been sent or who was taking care of them, if they needed medication, if they were taking the medication and so on. And it was frankly hard for me to believe that. Um, so I asked her if she could write an affidavit for us, write a declaration that we could use in some sort of legal proceeding, a lawsuit, a TRO, some emergency legal action. And she couldn't do that because these, these were her clients in the criminal proceedings. But she offered if we could come to the courthouse and speak with them ourselves, interview them in the brief minutes before their criminal hearing started. So Georgina Guzman, one of our, our paralegal at the time, and, and I were in the courthouse in McAllen the Benson Tower the following morning um, to try to interview parents who were separated. And that first morning, there were easily over 80 people in the courtroom to be prosecuted for illegal entry, all of them shackled, wearing handcuffs, you know, in the same clothes that they had been wearing for weeks, probably. And we asked how many of them had been traveling with a child. And that morning, five parents uh, raised their hand. They could hardly raise their hand with their handcuffed wrists. Some of them had to stand up to signal that they had been traveling with a child. I remember clearly it was, it was three fathers and two mothers. Uh, four of them had been traveling with only one child, and one of the mothers had been traveling with three children. And they had all been separated. And that was the very first time when we started to have these conversations with the parents. And it very quickly dawned on us that the government was not keeping track of the children's information, names, date of birth, country of origin, and of which child had been traveling with which parent to make sure that they could be reunited. That became clear from day one. So from that day onward, we went back to the courthouse to document the separations, try to keep track of which child had been separated. And then over the following weeks, we started our efforts to try to try to reunite them. Over the course of that roughly month that we were doing that, 
we at the McAllen Courthouse alone, which is one of over a dozen courthouses uh, across the border, we interviewed 382 separated parents. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. It's, it's hard to place ourselves back in the position where we were back in, in May or June of 2018, because at the time, we didn't know how this was going to end. When parents would ask, when would I see my son again? We had no answer to that because we didn't know whether they would see them again or when or how. Now, you know, four years later, it's different when we know how it kind of ended for some parents, better than for others, tragically for some. But at the time, it was truly unknown how this would play out, how far the administration would go with this policy. I um I like how in the book at one point your wife is like I'm going to call child protective services and tell them what's happening here you know because I I think she's a nurse is that correct She's an occupational therapist An occupational therapist and she's like you know by by law or, or you know ethically I have to do this and and I love this moment where she's basically calling child protective services to report the United States government for child abuse <laughs> and uh yeah, if you could talk about that, sort of what was going on at that at that moment and with your family too, because I'm always really curious about people like you who are in the trenches, uh, how you deal with this also at a personal level and a family level, because this is uh, so incredibly traumatic, you know? Yeah, so my wife, Carla, is, is an occupational therapist and, and she you know, hearing the, the reports on this, hearing from me, what we were seeing, what we knew was happening. One night, she just called the CPS. They have a 24-hour hotline to report child abuse. And it turns out that licensed medical professionals or healthcare professionals like my wife have an obligation, an affirmative obligation to report child abuse if they become aware of it. So she did. <laughs> she called and uh, the, the person told her that a lot of people had been calling to report child abuse of, of immigrant children due to the separations, but that there was nothing that CPS, Texas CPS could do because the children were in federal custody. Um, and yeah, to your second point, it's, it's hard, and it was particularly hard that summer to have a clear separation between the, the professional and the personal. You know, we, the, you know, lawyers and advocates doing the social justice work, we try to talk a lot about work-life balance and, and, you know, taking self-care and all of that. But it's hard when, in that uh, context, in the family separation context, it was impacting me from every direction, right? I am an immigrant myself. I came to the U.S. as a teenager. Um, we have now a son and a daughter. At the, in 2018, we only had a son. And he was 15 months old, right? And at that age, when you see how impossibly difficult it is for a child to be separated from his parents in this case, you know, he couldn't stand being away from either me or my wife for longer than a few minutes or an hour. The first time that my wife Carla took him to, to daycare, for example, and this might be a common experience for parents, um, that he, when, when she left him there, he was crying, he didn't want to stay. She left him like the very first day in daycare. And then an hour later, the, the folks from the daycare called my wife to see if she could come and pick him up. And 
to contrast that with what I was hearing from the parents in the in the courtroom every day, multiple times a day, was extremely difficult. And and in some ways, I, I still continue to process that today. Um, it felt like a privilege to be able to have your son with you and be able to go to the preschool or daycare and pick him up. And it just made me think about the children and the parents, right? The, the children in particular, who really did not understand why their parents had left them in a facility, why they wouldn't come and get them. And you think about a four-year-old, a five-year-old, what do they know about zero tolerance or about immigration status? It's mommy or papi, and why why aren't they here? Yeah, and, and I'm wondering, what made you want to write a book? Because I, I imagine that must have been sort of reliving some of that trauma, right? And then why did you decide to interweave your own family story in, in the book? What made you decide to sort of do that? In the summer of 2018, it never crossed my mind that I would write a book about it, that I would end up writing a book. There were a few stories, a few instances where I thought, man, I, I wish this could be preserved somehow because these stories need to be told. They are so impactful and so illustrative of the problems with our immigration system and our immigration laws that I wish we could preserve them in some way and share them widely. But it was not until many months after that summer, in the spring of 2018, I was invited to speak at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, to a group of first-generation college students. And in talking to them about that work, about the work representing separated families, I started also including details about my experience as a first-generation college student and then as a first-generation immigrant to the U.S., and it was in that context that I had the first inkling of an idea of actually there may be some, some parallels, some common threads that could make for a longer story and for a book. So that's where, where the idea came from. And in some ways, writing the book, putting uh, these experiences, these feelings on the page was cathartic and therapeutic. I was telling somebody that writing the book was therapy. And they promptly corrected me that, no, it was not therapy. It may have been therapeutic, but therapy is, is its own thing. So I, I think I letting it out and sharing it with, you know, with the readers um, was one way of not keeping it all bottled up inside myself. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about your, your personal story, which is in the, in the book? Certainly. So I was born in the state of Nuevo Leon, which is in northern Mexico, in a small town, um, Allende, Nuevo Leon, about three and a half hours from the border. And that's where I grew up. And for the first nine years of my life, I, you know, my life was in Mexico. My family had no plans of moving to the U.S. We, I had some aunts and uncles who had lived in the U.S. for as long as I knew. But that was it. Uh, everyone on my mom's side of the family, for example, was and still is in Mexico. But when I was nine, in the fourth grade, my father moved to the U.S. in search of work. He had been a, uh, a truck driver in Mexico uh, earlier in his life. At that point, he was, uh, you know, a fledgling musician. Him and his brother had formed a band that never really took off. So then he, he moved to, to McAllen, Texas, right across the border to look for a job and he found a job as a bus driver, school bus driver. And for about four years, for a little over four years, 
my siblings and my mom and I, we stayed in Mexico while he was in McAllen working. And, and he had U.S. citizenship, so he was able to come and visit us, you know, a week and a month, sometimes two weekends a month. But we couldn't visit him, and we certainly couldn't move to the U.S. yet. So we, he was gone from our day, daily lives, you know, from the breakfast table or the dinner table. And when medical emergencies came up, my mom had to figure it out on her own and trying to, trying to make ends meet in between visits from my father. And at the time, I never thought of it as something particularly difficult for, for me. I, when you're a child, you know, it is what it is. Things are the way they are. You have the life and the situation that you have. Um, my friend's parents or would go to work and come back in the evening. My dad would go to work and come back three weeks later. And it just was what it was. And in, in fact, I never did it cross my mind in the summer of 2018 that I had lived through a family separation. I never thought of it in those terms until many months later, like I was saying earlier, until talking to other first-generation students and, and immigrants. And it's like, oh, I, I guess... That was a form of separation. It's different, of course. I don't mean to compare it with the, you know, torturous separations of, of zero tolerance. But not having my dad around certainly marked my childhood and, and who I ended up becoming as an adult. Yeah, and, and there's one passage where he, the family's finally going to be reunited in Texas. And it comes down to basically the decision of this immigration agent, right? And and you're talking about just how much incredible power that immigration officials have, because it really depends on what they had for lunch, what mood they're in. You know, they could they could say no, they could say yes, and and your mother's just like, well, you know, hopefully he's in a good mood today, and uh, you know writing about immigration for so long, people always say, well, why can't they just get in line and do things the right way? Um, and it's just so incredibly difficult, I think, to do things the right way. And even if you do, you may be rejected, you know? Um, right. When I hear people say that, um, sometimes referring to their grandparents or great-great-grandparents who came, quote, the right way, so first, kind of the arbitrary nature of what counts as the right way has changed over time, right? Before 1924, there wasn't even a checkpoint at the border. You could come. If there was work, you came. And then you went back, and people would cross back and forth very commonly. Then we had the Immigration Act of 1924 and currently the Immigration and Nationality Act of, of 1965. And, and, what, and those laws have dictated what is the right way. Right? So it hasn't always been the same. And for the most part, for more than half of the history of this country, there was really no immigration law at the border, no restriction on who could come. Um, in terms of coming the, quote, coming the right way today, people often also frame that as, why don't they just get in line? The thing is that there's no line to stand in. Right? For most people, there is no line. And during the Trump administration, and in some ways up until today, even for people trying to apply for asylum, even those who try to do it, quote, the right way and apply at a port of entry and present themselves and say, I, I am fleeing persecution and death threats. I would like to apply for asylum. To this day, they're being turned away. During the Trump administration, it was under the pretense of not having enough staff at the ports of entry to process them. And, uh, and the, the policy known as metering or turnbacks, which has been challenged in court successfully, 
and and today it's title 42 right under uh, using the pandemic uh, as a pretext the trump administration started this policy and it has continued under the biden administration even though now you know public health experts have said multiple times that there's no public health justification for it i've crossed the border multiple times since the pandemic started not once was i asked did i have any symptoms had i been in touch with somebody who may have been positive i could have had COVID and no one asked me for it. And yet if you're undocumented or trying to apply for asylum, you're turned away and expelled. So I think even for people who try to do it, quote unquote, the right way, the system has been um, yeah, manipulated and mutilated in many ways to make that completely impossible. Yeah, I, I like the way you describe it as mutilated. I. I uh, often think of it as like Swiss cheese, you know, it's sort of been hollowed out so that it really no longer exists. There's only a sort of a shell left of, of asylum, you know. Um, what is happening now with family separation cases? I know you're at the Southern Poverty Law Center now. You're not at uh, Texas Civil Rights Project anymore, but have you sort of kept up on, on the issue? Yes, I have. And I think there's, I guess, three ways to think about it. So one is reunification of the families who were separated by the Trump administration under the zero tolerance policy and related policies and practices. And so the Biden administration has, on the one hand, created a task force, a family reunification task force that has reunited hundreds of families. And that has been wonderful and great, a great first step for many of these families. At the same time, uh, the Biden administration has, is vigorously defending the family separation policy in court. Many of the families who were separated by the Trump administration have brought lawsuits against the U.S. government for monetary compensation. And it's hard to say exactly what the just amount of compensation would be for a family who was tortured in that way through the separation and the uncertainty of knowing whether they would see their children ever again. But the fact remains that this administration, the Biden administration, is vigorously defending those lawsuits in court, defending the policy, defending the officials who carried it out. And that's something that we, I cannot really understand how and why they are defending it so aggressively, but they are. So those lawsuits will, will run their course and hopefully reach a, an outcome that is favorable to the families, that gives them some semblance of compensation for the torture that they endured. Um, there are dozens, perhaps hundreds of lawsuits pending in the courts. So those will, you know, work their way through the courts, perhaps appeals. So it might be a protracted process, but eventually they will come to a conclusion. Um, and then the third aspect of this is ongoing separations because they, they are still happening, even though President Trump signed an executive order saying that families should not be separate or should be kept together to the extent practicable. Then the Biden administration ended the zero tolerance policy, took it off the books. But nonetheless, separations still happen for reasons such as, you know, if the person, if the parent crossing does not have uh, or has a rather a, a criminal history, even if it's completely unrelated to the best interest of the child or their ability to care for their children, sometimes they are separated for that reason. For example, if you've been deported before and cross again, you likely have a felony on your record by that point. And sometimes, oh, this person is a felon, they cannot take care of their own child. When the only thing they've done is cross the border 
likely to reunite with family, right? So those are some of the ways in which our laws demonize migration, criminalize migration to the detriment of, of children in many cases. So there was a recent report in, this, in the San Diego Tribune about more recent separations under the Biden administration post zero tolerance. And you know, one, one thing that has been surprising for me after I've published the book and have started you know, doing interviews about it and talking to people about it, I had a colleague earlier this week tell me, like, you know, I never thought of it that way, but I guess I did live through a separation. My mom, when I was in Colombia, my mom moved and, and then the lawyer filed the wrong paperwork and what was supposed to be three weeks apart became three years apart. And little details like that that are, appear to be little, but then they end up having huge implications for the lives of children and immigrants in this country. Yeah, I imagine as you're touring with your book, you're going to have a lot of interesting conversations with people uh, around that issue, you know, bringing it up to you. Um, what, uh, what are some things the U.S. government could do to stop family separation? Like, are there policies now that they could just stop doing? There are many things that the government could do right now to better care for immigrant families when they come at, uh, at the border. Whether they are what some people refer to as economic immigrants, you know, people coming to the U.S. looking for work, or asylum seekers. I think having government employees at the border who are not part of the Border Patrol, but are caseworkers, social workers, people who specialized in working with children, working with individuals who have gone through traumatic experiences. Having those be the first responders at the border when needed could be so critical. And all that would take is a political will to do it. It's just a question of money, and that equates to political will, to provide these resources at the border and see immigrants and asylum seekers as something worthwhile of receiving and devoting resources to, not as a threat to the national security of this country. And, and it's one of the larger problems, and I talk about this in the book, that since um, the Patriot Act uh, ad adopted after 9-11 that brought all the immigration agencies under the, the purview of the Department of Homeland Security. So now you have the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is the agency that is supposed to process asylum applications, under the same umbrella as the anti-terrorist units of DHS and Homeland Security Investigations and the FBI and all of those agencies that are, by definition, um, have a law enforcement focus. So by having the agency that's supposed to have an asylum and, and a protection focus under a law enforcement department, it has imbued the entire department with this national security law enforcement focus, which may be necessary in some corners, but if even the asylum processing agencies have that focus, they're always looking at the applicant as a threat, as a potential threat to national security, not as somebody who needs protection and support. Right. And that really ramped up, I think, starting, I guess, with Obama and then really, really ramping up during Trump. Correct. Just this uh, military overall militarization and just sort of dismantling the asylum process. The budgets of both Border Patrol and ICE have continued to grow every single year since the establishment of ICE in 2003 and Border Patrol in 1924. Their, border, their budgets have continued to grow, and in the last 20 years, they've always grown, and especially ISIS budget has ballooned 
even in the years when net migration into the U.S. has been a net negative. More people leaving the U.S. than coming into the U.S. After the 2008 financial recession, the number of migration for the next two years dropped significantly, plummeted. And yet the budgets of those agencies kept growing and growing. And it's a bit of a, I don't think it's a, not a chicken and egg problem, but like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The agency wants more resources. So in order to justify those resources, they will spend all the ones given to them this year to say they need more and buying additional equipment and, you know, becoming more and more militarized. It's a race to the bottom in many ways. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Efren, for joining the Border Chronicle. We really appreciate it. And uh, everybody, read read his book. Thank you. Thank you. My Boy Will Die of Sorrow. It's a great book. My pleasure, <laughs> Melissa. More information at myboywilldieofsorrow.com. And the full title of the book is My Boy Will Die of Sorrow, A Memoir of Immigration from the Front Lines. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview is edited by me, Brenna Maitre-Nalara. If you like what you're hearing, please like us on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps others find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com.